The subject for the evening talk is transmission. It has been uh, said that uh, since the uh, time of the, uh, the Buddha, around two and a half uh, thousand years, the transmission of the Dharma has been uh, taking place from one generation to the next. And quite often the approximate length of time of a generation usually regarded as about uh, 25 years. So there's around about 100 generations of transmission of teachings and practices for uh, men and women in a variety of circumstances, environments and uh, situations. And one of the threads which has weaved its way through these generations is the language, various ways of transmission. What is transmission? What is, what is the uh, place and the significance of that? And we might have at times a kind of uh, restricted or limited perception or view or experience or transmission. And the association for some will be upon the contact with whoever, whatever. There's an impact uh, which is made there is some impact and influence upon consciousness and one might feel awakened or enlivened or renewed in some way or other. And the language of transmission, as I say, often uh, refers to that. That certainly can and does apply both through language and silently and has an appropriateness to it. Much in the coexistence of things obviously depends very much upon our receptivity. And there can be in life qualities and levels of uh, receptivity which are much higher than we sense. And events of life can touch us well and touch us profoundly and make a substantial qualitative difference to our view, our perception, our experience of life. So we might say that in terms of transi transmission there is a kind of contact, a kind of meeting which takes place and in the meeting which takes place its impact is enough to open our life up a different sense, a different uh, order of things. And that may come in a varieties of way, ways and means. Exposure to teachers' teachings, of course, one can include in that. But I think it's important not to neglect the other kind of resources which are available as well for that kind of contact meeting with communication with which touches us well, profoundly 
and we sense and know the benefit of it. And, as has been mentioned here pre in previous days, one area of that is with regard to exposure uh, to the nature, pleasant and unpleasant face of it, as we have referred to uh, in the inquiry period. It's also the contact and exposure uh, as well in terms of uh, listening to the Dharma, speaking the Dharma, the depth of uh, meditation, the spontaneous arising of things, and also in just a moment in time, when nothing purposeful or intentional or deliberate is taking place, yet it touches upon us. We can't explain why or how, whatever that might be which has touched us, but, as I said, the outcome, the outflow from it is extremely beneficial and sometimes the impact of it is strong and deep enough that we regard it as making a turning point in our life. And so there will be some of you in the uh, hall here who can, you can turn your attention back to moments and periods in your life where something's impacted uh, on you, it's a, a clear significant shift which has gone on and something of the old may have dropped away or re-evaluated and for some it's a night and day shift of making fresh and new directions in, in one's life. Hard to explain, hard to explain the interactivity, the uh, dependent arising nature of things where something comes together and we respond affirmatively uh, to that. Certainly and generally speaking the greatest receptivity will be known, understood and appreciated through a conscious, mindful life and therefore that quiet but determined resolution in one's life to live each day as fresh and as new as one can. And if in this life there are vows worth uh, taking and protecting and supporting, certainly one of them would be to live each day as fresh and as new and to be as clear about as one possibly can. Right from wake up to, to sleep. And, and, and that itself, the energy of that, does heighten and stimulate a certain kind of cellular sensitivity and contact with the world. And in that openness to all, all of that, maybe there's a chance for some tremendous revelations. Maybe there's a chance for us to have a, an immediacy of breathtaking enlivening of the whole being and the benefits that can come for uh, one, one and all. But sometimes it means sacrifice. Sometimes it, it means not feeding anything which dulls the consciousness. Sometimes it means making sacrifice. It's learning to let go of the pursuit of pleasures as much as the uh, 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 dealing with pain and the letting go of pain. 
So there's renunciation, sacrifice, giving up, letting go, learning to make allowances for all of those themes which we touch upon here during the days to help keep the consciousness wide open. And therefore any self-cherishing ideas that we cling to, if one wants transmission, they have to go. One wants transmission from whatever the vehicle, the means, the resources, then the self-cherishing has to give way to the non-self-cherishing. And therefore, a turning around of the consciousness from self-cherishing to non-self-cherishing and appreciation. Those of you who have been to uh, Mother India or have read anything from there will have heard, possibly, probably, from time to time of uh, the, the word darshan. And... The, in the course of the uh, history of the teachings, uh, Darshan somewhat, I feel, uh, easily got uh, corrupted through the various shenanigans of various uh, gurus who would um, stare into the eyes of uh, some uh, person and in doing, doing that uh, would speak about what Darshan is. The word darshan means seeing. The Buddha used the word uh, uh, with uh, regularity. Where there's the bona fide situation, the genuine authentic situation, sometimes, as I say, the contact with eye con contact, common mode and form of uh, darshan, can be very beneficial, influencing, um, opening, etc. And over the years, and if I may say now, uh, 30 years since I first went to India and have been there every year uh, since 1974, so I have some exposure to uh, uh, Indi India, that I've heard many, many, many beneficial and countless stories of uh, Darshan, of the... Uh, momentary eye, contact with the Guru, with the Master, and the outflow and the benefit that has come. But obviously and uh, uh, equally, there are plenty of situations where it hasn't been much of that at all, and it's been a kind of, I would call, mutual massaging of egos through um, eye, eye contact there. And so one needs some care and um, mindfulness with uh, all, all of these uh, areas. And just uh, recently I had a conversation with a person who was in quite some degree of dilemma uh, over this, in that she had been to uh, India and had a uh, darshan there, and then felt that her life was transformed, it would never be the same, only to return back to the Western paradise and have such a shock at every level, it left her with considerable degree of severe doubt. And then the difficulty and the dilemma that arose in her, and that was either, oh my God, my ego must be so huge and so big that uh, 
it's just back in full force and full swing. Or the other bitter thought that arose was, well, this guru who I've given so much devotion to um, can't have that much power and darshan because he hasn't made any inroads into my guru, my um, inner life at all. And I'm just like I was. So the doubt either goes towards oneself and the scale of one's ego, or the inability for the guru to transmit at any level of depth. And she was in a genuine conflict and confusion uh, over this. And these circumstances can and do arise when in the, we look and, as it were, put our eggs in one basket. Dharma teachings are broad and expansive and have depth to it. And it would be rather a pity, in a way, if in the breadth and depth of the, the teachings we, we say to ourselves, well, someone, whoever that person might be, someone can do it for me. All my efforts are not doing it. And then the other extreme in all of this is believing that it's only through one's own efforts. And therefore, the support, the awareness and the wisdom of others is inapplicable. It's not through other self that transmission takes place. It's not through one self that transmission takes place. It's a not-self that transmission takes place. And it takes some contemplating on, some meditating on. And if one understands this, then one can save oneself an air ticket to India. <laughs> just, just a few months ago on this uh, theme, when I was at Gaia House, <laughs> a uh, person came into the room for a one-to-one -one, um, in interview her name down and for the uh, uh, 10 minute uh, 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 slot I noticed Shada was, was just giving 10 minutes t today cutting off uh, a third of the time <laughs> welcome to the club Shada and uh, <laughs> maybe it was after that uh, <laughs> the humour last night. Anyway, <laughs> so the woman, the, woman, the woman sat down and she said, you know, she said, there's so much talking going on, talking doesn't seem to lead any, any, anywhere. She said, could we just have, could we have this 10 minute period of time uh, looking into each other's eyes? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> And so then she said to me, well, does this make you feel um, uncomfortable? I said, no. I said, okay, one minute. And <laughs> so we spent one minute looking in uh, each, each other's eyes. And then when we got to the, the uh, end, she said, um, what was your experience? How did you... <laughs> And I said, 
um, well, I was just practicing seeing things as they are. And, uh, and she said, do you have any, any other experience? And I said, well, apart from the experience of counting up to 60, I can't... <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes people forget that I'm a Dharma teacher, not a, a bottle of Prolex. And <laughs> so in communications, in various ways that we uh, communicate and uh, make, make uh, uh, contact with, as I say, the, surely the touch of life. Who needs a human being? Uh, a single one, an isolated one. What about the darshan with existence? What about the face of existence? What about being touched with existence? Seems a pity to isolate a, a particular name and form and invest him, invest her with certain kind of uh, features and characteristics when, when all said and done, it's body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness unfolding equally everywhere from one human being to another. And all the other demonstrations and touch and sweetnesses of existence. And surely our consciousness for the Dharma of life can be uh, of um, an expansive sense. Then we wouldn't need to go looking hither and thither. We wouldn't be impressed with these um, uh, charismatic stories and psychic powers and, and guru darshans and, and all of that we would be able to say deeply and honestly uh, of ourselves, there's no greater darshan in life than the darshan that's available to us right here, right now, in this moment, wherever it might be. And we know that, we feel it, we, we feel our, our cellular life actually responding to it, as it does, easily and naturally. And for that sense and appreciation, we then really do appreciate and we really do understand whew, everything I could ever, ever, ever ask, ever want is as close to me as it possibly ever could be. It can't be any closer. The whole life is absorbed into the darshan of existence. Always was and always will be. And suddenly all these other peripheral, superficial, shallow darshans which uh, spiritual people have made such an uh, incredible fuss about in, in a bunch of human aggregates there really is missing, missing, missing the point, missing what Darshan is. Our freedom and our right to touch, to question, to uh, expand our uh, uh, con consciousness is a very important and invaluable freedom so that, our, that we dis discover much more immediately rather than thinking this isn't good enough I've got to be here, I've got to be there I've got to be with this person or whoever or whatever it, it might be we kind of overlook what's already at hand in the movement of the inner life in the manifestations and expressions of it we get exposed to different practices, of course. We're 
have spoken and explored to some extent during the days here. There has been the practices of vipassana, that perception and seeing clearly the uh, arising and passing of things, that perception which sees clearly the characteristics of what's unsatisfactory in life and facing them very clearly and straightforwardly. There's the seeing of the self, the I, the me, uh, and the my, and bringing direct observation to uh, all of that so that we don't feed ego life, that we not only can see well enough clearly, which says when there's some clinging or identification, when we say I am A, we just see social agreement. Whatever role and identity we have, we see it at an event of cooperation through human beings. That the roles don't have any ex- uh, individual existence to them. They exist through cooperation. And therefore we, there's an awareness. Ah, even when I say I am A, that in the very expression of that, in the very noticing of that, Immediately, there's the understanding that brings in the rest of the world. I am a teacher, it brings in students. I am a parent, it brings in a child. I am a friend, it brings in somebody that I know, or whatever. So that even in the function, in the movement of apparent self, the wisdom and the clarity, which is the great transmission, immediately shows, ha, the whole world is, is being involved in who and what I am. Even when I say I am breathing, I'm bringing in the air element from this world, drawing it into the body and releasing it from the body. Even when I say I'm standing, I'm bringing in the earth and the ability to stand on this earth. So every expression and demonstration of my I has no inherent, no individual, no personal existence just a way of communicating but the wisdom says ha, this communication reveals the interrelatedness with all things and therefore we hold the roles lightly we hold the breath lightly we hold physical existence lightly because it's related elsewhere and what it's related to elsewhere is far more important than its apparent relationship to I what it's related to elsewhere, of all this what we call the person. It's more important what it's related to elsewhere, like weaves in elsewhere, connected with elsewhere, then it's connected with I, it's connection with I. Therefore, I is held very, very lightly, as perceived as lightly as when you and I draw a line on the water, momentary gone. Nothing of it. That awareness, that wisdom, that clarity, we can understand. We can feel, we can sense, there can be a knowing of this. When the mind is moving, and all the waves that it uh, uh, moves and the acceleration of its movement of feelings, emotions, states of mind, thought, uh, etc. That when we are caught up in those ways, we feel 
from our whole experience and sometimes physically as well, terribly unsteady. We feel a terrible unsteadiness. And we feel far away from what should be. And there's some kind of natural inner protest which goes on inside of ourselves. Why am I like this? I shouldn't be feeling like this. I shouldn't be going through this or whatever. And all the turbulence, to as great a degree that it is, is to the same kind of degree that the protest tends to come with it. How one is feeling, how one is experiencing the state of mind. And in all that tumultuousness and all of that unsteadiness, there is some sense, perhaps, that we are far from the truth of the matter. And that in language of Dharma, in the understanding of Dharma, in the transmission of Dharma, the truth is that which is ever steady. And so when we feel out on a limb, when we feel isolated, when we feel very separated, when we're going through hell and difficulties, fears and paranoias, anger and confusion, separation and alienation, and the mind is troubled in all the ways that it can be troubled. Somewhere inside of us, perhaps, there's some sense that we've lost contact with something which is steady, which we call truth. And perhaps we might say of truth which is steady, A, it's unchanging. It doesn't fade, truth doesn't increase and de- decrease, language does. Perceptions do, information does, etc. Movement of the mind, of course, qualitative comparisons, all of that, relative truth. Of course, it fluctuates and changes from one mind to the other, one personality to the other. But truth as truth stays steady. Whether life goes on as we know it, or whether it doesn't go on as we know it, whether the species of humanity walks on the earth or whether it doesn't or whatever it might be truth of things that truth stands steady so when we are steady when we feel a steadiness of presence of our being a steadiness with things perhaps in that steadiness we actually feel and we actually are more than what we think perhaps closer to the truth It's as though whatever happens in the dance and the fluctuations of life and in the comings and goings or whatever, steadiness stands steady. The truth is same today, same yesterday, same tomorrow. It stays steady. And some of our anguish and our conflict and our projections and confusions is we know, we sense something's wrong. We sense some isolation from what the truth is. In the practices where the fundamental thread is knowing the truth, not with language, not with words, but with kind of a certain sensibility, we might say, it proves itself not only to be steady, but simultaneously to be very liberating and very freeing. Whatever it might be, if we can live with the truth of things, then in that truth we can stand steady and the steadiness brings us to greater 
sense and understanding of what freedom is. So one of the features of that which has been taking place in the Dharma community, Vipassana community uh, recently, in the recent years, is explorations, as I mentioned, of Vipassana, the ability to focus, to be mindful, to attend to the moment of existence, to see it for what it is. And also, as uh, Shada was speaking to, and in Metta meditation, of the importance of the heartfulness meditations and the heartfulness uh, uh, practices. And all our contribution to awareness and heartfulness actually working together. And in that cooperation and working together, it cultivates once again the receptivity. Cultivates some kind of awareness which is refined and present. And something about that starts absorbing one's being with existence. For some, it's too easy, well not too easy, but to keep on just what's the pleasant form and expression of the experience. Keeping on the heartfulness, keeping on the metta or whatever. And with others, it can go the, and shift the other way in terms of just seeing impermanence, just seeing change, just seeing ego arising and, and passing. Both of those are forms of transmission, but neither vipassana practice nor metta practice, brahma, vihara practice or whatever, neither of them ever can ever be considered an end in itself. It's ways to see. Ways to attend to, ways to be present to, with awareness, with mindfulness, with heartfulness, to bring all of that out. So that the sense of the darshan of existence begins to be much more present, much more obvious to us. That in a real way it, it happened already. In a real, genuine way, when we speak of enlightenment, the revelation of things as they are is, in a way, it already happened. And that the transmission already took place. And every event running through eyes and ears, nose and tongue, every thought and every sensation, every experience that go, goes on, already is a demonstration of something utterly immeasurable and incomprehensible. Therefore, enlightenment already happened. And sometimes we need to shift whole interpretation, shift the methodology which is, has been given to us as a tradition and some uh, aspects of the tradition really has wisely endeavoured to do. So if a person, for example, feels kind of comfortable on the path and in that comfort on the path is sensing of moving towards along the path and not knowing where it might lead and may or may not have a concept for that. One's going along the path to enlightenment, to liberation, 
to the, to the final darshan of existence or whatever one might uh, to refer to. That that very movement uh, along can provide, as I say, comfort and feeling of direction and a feeling of purpose and going somewhere. And with that kind of steadiness, and when there is steady with us, it does have the sense of no stone is left unturned. Everything is grist for the mill. Everything is a way of practice to show my relationship to how steady I am on the path. And though, though even though one says, well, sometimes I seem to be off the path, or I lose my practice, or I'm right on with my practice, or whatever, one's got that kind of path consciousness so frequently spoken of in the texts and by the teachings. But what if there is a genuine steadiness along the path? If the truth is steady, and one is steady, is one going to be constantly looking for the end of the path? Why? Why look towards the end of the path if one is steady on it, and the truth is steady, and it's the truth which liberates Sometimes they say, hey, this path ain't no path. <laughs> this path is a convenient construct with no truth of it. No, no, nothing but a couple of useful lines in the mind which the thought will say, and now I'm on and now I'm off or I don't know the hell if I'm on it or off it, or, or whatever. But if there is that sense of steadiness with it, as plenty of you here well, well know, in that steadiness with it, could we enter into yet another letting go? One more letting go. And that is the willingness and the risk to letting go of the whole construct, the whole idea of being on a path. And see where it leads us. See what's left when one hasn't even got that to turn to as a refuge, as a guide, as a movement towards or whatever. One has abandoned all of that. And maybe, maybe, in that abandonment, there is a simultaneous transmission of what freedom is, what liberation is, what living a life without walls really means. Even the most benevolent of walls, which we call the path being on it or not sliding off it. So the teachings of transmission, teachings for freedom in life, means that nothing in the relative, none of it, not vipassana, not the form of it, not the metta, none, none of it is held sacred. None of it's worth making a fuss of, nor all the most externalized demonstrations 
the religion which is furthest out there. And as we get closer to things, closer to things, closer to things, we actually begin to sense and feel that even as I say, the walls of kindness, the walls of practice, still are frameworks. And we want to discover that which is, has no frame to it. Why? Because the truth has no frame to it. Why? Because freedom has no frame to it. Sometimes we hear this and attend to this. As I say, the tradition has explored these things beautifully and profoundly. Mahayana text, Buddha said, I achieved nothing from complete, unexcelled enlightenment. When every day an ordinary mind hears that, goes, whoa, whoa. But, in that freedom that is so clear and so obvious I achieved nothing from all this I achieved nothing from all of this nothing and it's so beautifully liberating And every moment makes the steadfast truth of that clear. Not a single event can uh, obscure liberation. Not a single I or my has any inherent power to it. Has no inherent significance, has no meaning to it, has no substance to it. It is, it is as empty as empty can be. And every perception of the I and the my rising and falling is the very living proof of how empty it all is. And therefore we can be so bold as to see the emptiness of the path. We can be so bold as to see the freedom of not being found anywhere on anything. And then life unfolds in its natural way. Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, life just unfolds itself in its own um, wonderful freedom. And we live until the nature decides to squeeze the last breath out of our body. And we have no qualms about it. Because we know where it all belongs. It belongs to the truth of things. Not to I and my. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings be touched with the transmission of existence. May all beings live a free and joyful life. So let's have two or three quiet minutes together, please.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.